0: Welcome into another episode of Wrestling with the Mind. This is the second episode of the, uh, the the hot new podcast, or at least that's what I want to think it is. Um, hopefully it's helping people out. Uh, my first thing I will tell you is if you're a first-time listener, make sure to listen to the inaugural episode of Wrestling With The Mind. You can find that on uh, iTunes or SoundCloud, anywhere you get your podcasting needs. Um, because that first episode kind of explains uh, what this show is, the purpose what we're doing here, so go back and give that a listen. Um, we're going to get right into it today, as I have a special guest on the phone. And one of the things that we're trying to do on this show is is show you know normal everyday people uh, that are doing extraordinary things uh, that that deal with mental illness. That uh, because I think it's important to hear people uh, hear others that are success stories that that have overcome it or are living with it, um, whatever you want to say. So uh, right now I'm going to welcome in my guest for the show, uh, Tracy Roberts. Tracy, I want to uh, say a a huge thank you for joining me on the show today. Um, I know uh, sharing a story like one uh, with someone who deals with mental illness is is not an easy thing. Um, It's a very courageous feat, and uh, I want to thank you for joining me today.
1: You are more than
0: welcome, Seth. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's um, so l- let's uh, jump right into it. I know uh, you and I have a few things in common. We're both wrestling fans. That's kind of how we met um, mm-hmm. through my uh, my now, I guess, defunct wrestling radio show. Let's hope that uh, <laughs> this show does not have the same fate right now, uh, although that show ran for about eight years, so it's a pretty good run yeah. for any radio show. But um, we met through a professional wrestling, uh, through a friend, and, um, and and we've got to know each other a little bit. I know we work in the same uh, area of the world, I guess you would say, or or, or now we do, uh, as I've transitioned into teaching. Uh, I know you work in uh-huh. the education system. We'll talk about that a little bit as well. But first, let's get your background. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us, um, you know, what type of of mental illness is it that that you deal with? Because Um, obviously everybody deals with something a little bit different. Even if, you know, I say, hey, I deal with depression and anxiety, um, you may too. But everybody's story is a little bit different and it affects people in different ways. So give us a little bit of your background.
1: All right. Well, um, I am the middle child of three kids, uh, two sisters, so that's always fun. Um, And when I was younger, we were, I guess, what you would call transient. Um, We moved a lot. um, But I kind of had a hard time holding down a job. Um, and then we just weren't never, we were never really, um, rich or very well off to say. So, um, we had some struggles throughout our life. My dad was diagnosed with brain cancer when I was in sixth grade. Um, I still remember, uh, the day that we found out. And so that was a big strain. Um, and I moved to a school, I won't say it in case anybody's listening knows and they want to get angry about it, but moved to a school that was K through 12. Um, and never the entire time, I just never felt like I fit in there. Um, it was a very small school, so you either fit in with the jocks or the teacher kids or the, you know, that they called them at the time the goth, and I just never really kind of had a place. So, um, But I was that kind of person who tried really hard to make sure everybody else was okay and that, you know, I was everyone's defender, and I was the one that, internalized everything that went on. And so, you know, with my dad being sick and it was brain cancer. And um, at the time he was diagnosed, I think they said there were only 120 cases of his either worldwide or in the United States. I can't remember, but it was a very, very rare form. So, um, you know, he had to, Very extensive surgery, which led to a staff infection, and they had to take out, you know, a little bit part of his brain, and it left a, a, you know, a decent-sized gap in the back of his head, and it was just, it was a a lot for someone of a young age to go through, and him and my mom fought a lot, and I would find myself, a lot of the times, being her protector, you know he never hit her was never physical but just words and as we all know words can hurt sometimes wor- uh worse than physical so um and let me backtrack real quick i don't want this to sound like i'm you know bashing my dad or anything he had cancer which in his brain which led to personality troubles and stuff so i, I you know i fully believe in my heart of hearts that had that not happened it would have been a whole different you know, situation for me. And even today, if he were still alive, even though we had a really strained relationship, he would know his grandkids and we would visit and stuff like that. So I don't, I don't want it to come across as if like, you know, he had cancer and I'm making it out to be this horrible person because that's not the case, but it did create a lot of strain um, in the household. And so it again, and then at school, I just really never fit in um, and really never had a strong strong support system I had some really good friends there that I still have to this day but um but I was I was that kid who was quiet but I was an easy target and I remember one time in seventh grade someone that I actually was friends with a couple years before walked by my chair in my class yanked me by the hair or the head and dropped me on the ground and the teacher said nothing and no one ever did anything and so at that point that's where I kind of began to to not trust anybody at school and that was a big point too where i I didn't tell anyone anything because I didn't feel like anyone, to, anyone wanted to listen. And if I told them, I didn't feel like they would believe me. So, you know, here we go. Living in, in a, I don't want to say dysfunctional again. I, in case my mom or my sisters are anyone to listen to this. I don't want them to think I'm painting my childhood as a horrible thing, but it was rough. It was, it was rough. And um, so, you know, just going through the years, you know, arguing at home, wondering what was going on with dad, if he was going to make it to the next year, if, you know, we were going to get kicked out of our home, if we were going to, you know, just what was going to happen. And and I remember this one time when we were younger, um, my little sister came and uh, you know how sometimes, I don't know if they do it anymore, but like when you bounce checks, banks will send you like copies of the images of the checks. Yeah. And there were like three or four pages of this and she's looking at it. Of course, like I said, she was in like maybe – fifth or sixth grade, I think, and she was like, oh, man, they send you pictures of your checks, and she didn't realize what that was, but I did, and so for whatever reason, I remember that as kind of a moment where I really just, it sunk in for me that things were really rough, and I didn't see them getting any better, so um, so fast forward a couple of years, and we, mom and dad separated, um, so we moved again, but I stayed at the same school, had a lot of stuff going on, I turned to self-harm. Uh, A lot of people did not know that Um, I would start on my legs and wear pants, so nobody really ever knew that's what I would do. Um, The thoughts, the I would be so much better off dead, or you know, if I were gone, would anybody miss me? And I don't think they would, because you know, at home there's all this going on, and maybe it'd be one less trouble that anyone has to worry about. Or at school, you know, I felt invisible, and Stuff just kept going and kept going and kept going. And when I was 15, I remember uh, mom and dad got back together, which I completely despised because, again, I knew things weren't going to change. And so that I didn't want to be there because I didn't want to have to go through the whole cycle again of getting settled and then moving out. I actually never even unpacked my personal boxes when we moved from one house back to the old house. And I didn't even sleep in the bedroom. I would sleep on the living room couch because I just kind of knew not to get comfortable because things were not going to work. So, But I remember one night, I'm trying to think of what triggered it. I don't know if it was a disagreement between mom and dad or between me and him. And so everybody was in bed, and I'm on the living room couch. And I go into the bathroom, and I find one of the um, disposable, like, pink shave razors. And I popped off the plastic cart and took the razor blade. And that was going to be it. That was the night that I was like, I'm done with this. Forget it. You know, I'm I'm just done with it all. So, but I couldn't make myself like go straight for the wrist. So I started up like towards like my elbow and the inside, and I was just cutting down and down on each side of my arm, just trying to work up the nerves to to get to my wrists. And got to my wrists and made a. There's like I still have a scar on my right hand side where I made a cut and um, couldn't do it. So there was something that was saying, nope, don't do it. You know, we need you here on earth. I don't know what it was that stopped me, but I stopped. So, um, but the next day woke up and my mom asked what happened. And I told her I had broken a coffee pot the night before um, in the kitchen and cut myself cleaning it up. Which if you really stop and think about it nowadays, makes absolutely no sense um, how those cuts would be where they were. But again, she's dealing with, you know, family situations and her husband who she separated from is dying from brain cancer and she's trying to raise three girls and so I'm not mad at her that that she didn't catch on and actually she never knew um, that that's what happened until about two years ago when I finally told her so um, but went to school that day and for the first time like I was I was dying for help and so I went to school and I had on a short sleeve shirt but I didn't wrap up any of the cuts. So anybody who looked at me could see on each side of my arm, I had about five or six razor cuts going down my arm. And I remember not one single person, student, teacher, counselor, principal, nobody pulled me aside and asked what happened. Nobody pulled me aside and asked what was wrong. Nobody pulled me aside to talk, maybe not even to mention about what was on my arms, but just to check in to see how I was doing. And I always remember that. And I also remembered from that day, that was the day that I said, you know what, I'm out of here. I can't can't get away. You know, I want to get away. And so that's actually why I wound up at um, Western Kentucky University, because it was far away. And it had the degree that I wanted. And that's just kind of how I lived and made it through high school the last couple years was I can't get away. I can't wait to get away from here and just restart. And, you know... The thought never went away, but at that point, thankfully, I didn't get to the point again where I wanted to kill myself, Um, but I remember it was Christmas Eve of 1998, and my dad was in the hospital again, and it was myself and my two sisters, and the doctor came in and told us on Christmas Eve that dad had six months or less to live, so that was rough knowing that, that that was coming to an end, but at the same time as horrible as it's going to sound, and I hope it doesn't make me sound bad, but it's a relief because you sit there and you watch somebody you love suffer. And so to kind of know that there's an end insight, you know, kind of kind of helps the situation a little bit. But um, so we went through that. He passed away March 3rd of 2000, I'm sorry, of 1999, um, about three months before I graduated high school, um, which was hard. But he and I kind of had our own reconnection and you know we we fix things before that happens so um and then move to wku which if anybody in the world hears this is the greatest thing i ever did in my life i am convinced to this day if i did not leave where i was and go away to wku or just go away period but i always tell people wku was my savior because that's where I started clean. Nobody there knew me. Nobody there knew I had tried to kill myself. Nobody there knew that my family was divorced, and I had to get my first job as a senior so we didn't get evicted from our house. And, you know, they didn't know me. And um, so my freshman year, the end of my freshman year, my resident assistant had put a, um, a postcard in my mailbox that said, I think you'd be a really great R.A., and that was the moment at WKU that everything in the world just changed for me because I was like, oh, okay, so somebody thinks I, you know, I can connect with people and and I'm responsible and eh, we'll see. I'll probably get, you know, at that point you still have self doubt. I'll go to the interview and we'll we'll see and probably nothing and I, you know, I just I don't think they think I'm good for that job. And I went and went through the whole process and I actually was an RA for. Oh, gracious, three and a half years um, and a mighty good one, may I say. Not just, <laughs> <laughs> not just saying that stoop my own horn, but I mean, I still have people, you know, to this day who are like, oh, my gosh, you were my RA and you made Western, you know, so great. Or I was going through so much stuff and then I came and talked to you and, and things changed for me. And so, I, you know, was an RA, was a desk assistant, actually stayed and was a um, assistant hall director for a little while. Um, so I will always credit Western Kentucky University for changing my life around in a positive way. And I will always credit my RA for seeing something in me that I sure as heck didn't see and that I didn't believe anybody else saw because that was when I realized, wait a minute, somebody sees something in me. And then here I am responsible for 40 freshman girls away from their parents the first time away from, you know, boyfriends who they may have been with for three or four years going through so many things that, that I was the one helping them. And that, to me, was almost an oxymoron. Like, how am I somebody who couldn't help herself and couldn't see that I had, you know, empathy and that I had caring? Like, I knew it, I guess, deep down. But if you asked me, like, you know, when you graduate high school, what do you want to be when you grow up? If you had told, if I, you know, said, you want to do something helping people, I probably just laughed at you and said, no, I'm just going to be, you know, in a warehouse away from people where, I don't have to interact with people because at that point in my life, I didn't want to be around people, you know? And so fast forward to where I am now, I've been in um, the elementary schools for 11 years. I was actually secretary for 10 years um, of a great, wonderful elementary school, but even as a secretary, which is, you know, people immediately think is administrative and and it is, but you're also the first line of defense for parents. I've had um, parents came in, you know, when they were getting evicted from their home and just break down in tears and talk to me because they felt comfortable enough to do that. I had a dad come in when uh, his third grade daughter's mom overdosed and he asked me to sit with him while he told her this. So I have this connection with people that I'm unbelievably grateful for. And so actually that's now um, uh, what they call a student community liaison and I'm pursuing um, an opportunity to become a school counselor because, I want to be there for the needs of school. And you would think maybe that's all just high school and middle school related, but unfortunately mental illness and thoughts of suicide and self-harm are starting younger and younger and younger. And so, you know, but when people say, why, you know, you don't have to, you could have stayed a secretary forever and retired in 27 years and not fooled with it. Why did you go back to school? I went back to school because I wanted to make a bigger impact than I could as a secretary and secretaries can make huge impacts, but as a school counselor, I get that more one-on-one time with them and that connection with them. And for a lot of the students, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to, to have moved and been at three schools. I know what it's like to be afraid to go home, you know, on the weekend because you're afraid you're going to go hungry. I, I know what that's like. And so even though my life has been really rough, it's been a, a, winding path to putting me I think in the lives of people in a manner that hopefully I'm the one who can find them when they've cut their arms and see what's going on and they're not walking around feeling invisible like I did so um so that's kind of how you know I wound up on my journey you know where I am now professionally wise um that you know I said that one time was the only time I had tried to to intentionally harm myself and to end my life. But, um, you know, got married and happy and everything's great and had my son. He was, you know, my firstborn and everything was wonderful. And Oh, baby smells and snuggles and cuddles. And, you know, it, it was just the greatest thing in the world, but I was tired a lot. And I was like, Oh, you know, it's just, it's just a new mom feeling and, and everything. And so was, you know, on maternity leave for six weeks and then went back to work and, just kind of almost didn't want to go home. Not that I didn't love him. Not that I didn't love my husband. I just didn't want to go home because I just felt like it was another job per se, that when I went home, I was going to have to do this, miss, this, this, miss, this, miss. And you know, it wasn't enjoyable and it would, you know, people would be like, Oh, how's he doing? I'm doing great. And instead of getting that giddy gushy, like tears in your eyes, you are missing your baby. It was just like, okay, like he's good. And But at that point, I didn't realize that anything was wrong. I just figured again. I was just tired, you know, new mom, going back to work, everything. And then there was one day that um, I was stuck at school um, for a situation that was going on, you know, called my husband, asked him to pick up my son from his mom. And so we got into a little tiff because he had worked all day. You know, I was just down the road, but he didn't understand why I had to stay at work. And was long and short of it. So when I finally got home, they weren't home. He was picking them up. And I sat in my driveway for like 15 minutes with this, you know, four-month-old baby and a husband in a beautiful house and a job that I love more than anything on the face of this planet. And I was like, what am I here for? What is the point? What what am I here for? If I just ran off, you know, they would be fine. He could get remarried. He'd have a mom. He's young enough. It wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't affect him. I could find another job somewhere. Or, you know, a couple of times it got to the point where it was, why am I here on earth? And I and I don't know what it was, but I was at work one day and I just lost it and started crying and it was like, I need help. And so I called my, you know, called my doctor and went in and you know, got me on some medication to help me work through that. So I, but it's, of course, I didn't realize it, but at the time I was suffering from postpartum depression and postpartum depression. Unfortunately, unlike a lot of mental illness is taboo to talk about, which drives me insane because if we talked about this and that's why I think this podcast that you're doing, Seth, is such an amazing thing because there should be no shame. There should not be any any fear of repercussion. And I'm embarrassed to say it, but, you know, I was a big proponent on if you need someone to talk to, don't hesitate to talk to somebody. And if you have a mental illness that doesn't dictate who you are, yet when I realized I was suffering with the postpartum depression, I was so scared to make that phone call. And I was so embarrassed to tell anybody because, well, she has a mental illness. So again, it's so funny that being someone who's such a strong proponent of everyone else, if anyone else came in that office and said, This is what's going on, you know, talk to someone. Duh, duh, duh. But for myself, I felt that stigma and I don't know why. And I think unfortunately it's ingrained in us in this nation to automatically assume that if someone is going through something and their brain isn't working at quote unquote everyone thinks is the right way to work, then we should automatically shun them. And are they unstable? And are they capable of having children? Are they capable of having a a job? And that's a big part of what's wrong with mental health and understanding mental health today because I really feel like a lot more lives could be saved if that stigma was erased. And a lot more lives could be saved if if people knew what to look for, cause I've said, I, I knew what to look for, for postpartum, but not be, you know, not, Oh, not me. I, no, I'm, I'm not going to have it. And my husband even said after I'd gotten, you know, with the doctor and, and getting things back in order, he said, I noticed a change in you, but I didn't want to say anything because I thought you would leave me. And you know, that struck a chord. So, so this, this podcast right here, I think is, Amazing. I think it's a great step in hopefully reaching people and understanding. You know, for the longest time if someone had asked me to share my story, oh my gosh, no way, Jose. I only told my closest, I mean closest friends. Like I said, my mom didn't even know about a lot of this until two years ago. And now I'm to a point in my life where I want to share it. And it it is uncomfortable and it's sticky and you know, it's not necessarily something I like to rehash or rethink about, but it happened. And it happens to so many more people than we realize that maybe if I had heard someone's story or if maybe someone had reached out to me and realized my warning signs or my struggle, things would have been different. And so there is no shame in sharing your story. There's only power in sharing your story because there could be someone just like you, Seth, just like me, just like thousands and thousands of people in the world sitting out there Looking for a sign, reaching out for someone, searching for that hope, and they stumble across this podcast or, you know, a TED talk or something, and it resonates with them, and it completely changes their whole life.
0: Yeah, so. that, that's kind of my hope here with, with this podcast, and I'm gonna take, I'm gonna get the uh, the Mick Foley cheap pop in here. Um, you know, if, if you if you want to tell your story, if you want to just reach out, um, we have an email here. It's wrestlingwiththemind at gmail uh, at WrestleMindPod on Twitter or Wrestling with the Mind um, on Facebook. And, and I agree with you. And, you know, the thing is, is, is the first time that I ever told my story um, or, or let people know that I was dealing with it publicly, uh, I had a friend that I worked with that I thought was, was dealing with, with very similar things uh, that I had. Uh, and at that point i went and gotten uh some help and and went to counseling which i'm i fully endorse because i think sometimes Mm -hmm. it just helps to talk to people it just helps to, to, to get your emotions out and that was something that i went through but um i i had a long spiel that i put on my personal facebook page that i dealt with it and said hey if you are dealing with something like that you know go get help uh talk to people talk to me talk to anybody and, and, and I set the phone down and I went upstairs to take a shower because I knew in my mind uh, that, that this was going to go bad, that I had told everybody and they're going to, you know, it's going to be this outpouring of hatred or something. Um, right. But that's, but that's where my mind went. and I was terrified. So I go and I, and I take the shower and I, I get downstairs and I look at my phone and it's lit it's lit up with people that are supportive. And, you know, I've got friends that I never knew dealt with it that were texting me and calling me and saying, Hey, we deal with the same thing. Just know you're not alone. And, and that's one of the big reasons why I want to do this because um, there's 40 million diagnosed cases of mental illness in this country. That's not counting those that aren't. And I, I would exactly. suggest, there's a huge amount that aren't, um, you know, I dealt with it for years and didn't know I was dealing with it. And that that's the thing is um, that's the scary part for me is, is, you know, I went through high school and, and, uh, was, was dealing with something mentally that I, I couldn't understand. And uh, it took, you know, my, my now wife saying, hey, you know, maybe you want to go get checked out um, for me to realize, oh, hey, maybe there, maybe something's not right. Maybe something's amiss. Um, I want to go back to a couple of things that you said mm-hmm. b- because um, there are things that, that, that resonate with me personally, and I think people relate to them um, because I think they're – Traits of people that deal with mental illness, uh, or or at least some. I know what they are for me. And I, full disclosure, anybody listening, uh, if you're listening to this and and you didn't go back and listen to the first, do that. But, you know, I deal with uh, depression and anxiety. Um, I take medicine for it. Like my counselor told me when I got on medicine, you know, there's no shame in taking medicine for mental illness. If you go Mm -hmm. and you've got pink eye, you're going to get the antibiotics for it. If you go and you break, an arm, you're going to get medicine for it. whatever, you know, it's, it's no different than any other illness. And that's one of the things that, exactly. that, that I'm trying to, to get across as well is it's okay to not be okay. Um, right. but, uh, you mentioned that you were kind of the protector, um, of your friends and, and, and people that were close to you. And, um, that's something that really resonated with me. Cause I mean, even today I'm like that. I always tell people, you know, if you're in my circle of, of friends, uh, or people that I'm close to, I will I will defend you to the death. I mean, that's just the way I am. I, It almost feels like that part of that is because when you feel like you're not good enough for people, that the people that you think do accept you, um, you don't want to lose that.
1: Exactly. And, you know, I think a big part of it, too, is especially with us empathetic people and and, and, and helpers, we part of it might have just been... I didn't want to focus on the fact that I was scared and that I felt like I needed protected. So if I was protecting other people, then somehow magically I felt protected. And I don't know if that makes any sense or not, or, you know, it's, it, I guess it's just kind of always been ingrained to in me to make sure that everyone else is safe and taken care of before myself. So, but it's like you said, if you're good to me and, and like to my friend, I, I take care of you. And if you are having a bad day and you say that you need, a chocolate milkshake. Well, guess what? The next day you're going to have a large chocolate milkshake on your desk. Or if you know, I hear things, I remember things. I've always wanted to, I guess, make sure people never felt the way I did. And so, and by protecting others, I guess I felt like too, I had a purpose. Like, okay, well, you know, if I'm not here on earth, and who's here to protect so and so? Or who, you know, who's here to make sure that when mom and dad get in a verbal fight, that she has someone stand up for her? So, So I think part of it was just to have a purpose, but I've always, for whatever reason, it's just been ingrained in me to be a protector. But it's really actually kind of ironic because I don't take very well to being protected. And I don't know if that makes any sense or not.
0: But like, It does.
1: You know, if people are like, what do you need? Oh, I'm fine. So I still, even to this day, struggle with letting people in and letting people know what I'm struggling, you know, if I'm having a really bad day. I don't know if it's just because I'm older and I have more wrinkles now or what, but, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more written on my face and people can can tell. But, you know, I I couldn't tell you how many people still to this day, you know, are like, you had a really bad day yesterday? I had no clue because I have trained myself to slap on that smile. Yeah. And to, you know, to put on that perky voice. And it does not matter if I'm having one of the worst days of my life. If you interact with me or you come in contact with me, you're not going to have a clue. And it has to build up to the point where I finally just have to get it out. Um, and so I have, you know, several just close friends that I'll share anything with. But, you know, you walked into to where I was working one day and I was just having, like I said, a horrible day. I was down on myself, didn't know what, perp- you know, why am I here? Why do I fool with this? But you walk in those doors and that smile is on and that help is on and that protection is on. And so I, I still have a hard time letting people take care of me and protect me the way that I do them you know so if if someone passes away it's actually really weird I I've trained myself to not cry at funerals because I don't want to I'm not going to say want to seem weak because that's not what it is but I know other people are hurting and so I want them to know that they can come to my shoulder they can come for a hug and even though I'm hurting inside and I'm grieving inside I've just kind of trained myself that my first instinct and my first reaction is to make sure everyone else is okay and everyone else is able to deal with it. And everyone else knows that, that they have a listening ear. And I feel like if I'm there, even though it's expressing my emotions, which is completely normal and probably what I should be doing, I guess I just feel like if I hold it in, then they feel okay to let it out. And again, that's another part of me, you know, being a protector is almost to a fault. I, I hide my own struggles because if someone else is going through something, I'm always afraid that if they say, how's your day? And then I go, you know, it's actually been really bad. This is, this is, this is going on. Are they having a day worse than me? And they asked because they were looking for someone to talk to. And now that I've shared my problem with them, they don't want to tell me. And I, I said, I don't know if that makes sense or not. Oh, but it that does. In my brain, it makes perfect sense. You yeah. know, Yeah. I don't ever want someone to be afraid to tell me, Something going on in their world because I have stuff going on in mine.
0: So, well, and and I don't know if you're anything like me, but you know, I I don't like getting help, um, and and a lot of it I think has has been my mind telling me that I'm not worth help. You know, that I'm not but worth that might be it. Yeah. You know, that I'm that I'm that that I'm not worth that. that I'm not worth somebody's time, and I, that's something I've struggled with. And and you know, I want to transition that because you had mentioned, you know, when you went to um, when, it, when you got to WKU and um, you were asked to be an RA or, you know, somebody said, hey, you might be an RA. And it seemed like you experienced a lot of self-doubt at that point. I know that's something that I deal with even today. I mean, you know, medicine helps. And, you know, I, I've got other, you know, tips and tricks and things that I do uh, personally that, that kind of help me um, deal with, with mental illness. But Um, but self-doubt is something that I think across the board, anybody that deals with mental illness deals with, and it sounded like at that point in your life, it was, it was very prevalent, um, when you were going to be interviewed for a job as an RA.
1: Oh yeah. Because again, why, why is anybody going to expect me, not expect me, think that I have the ability to take care of 40 girls that I don't know. Why does anybody think that I've got the ability to, to be that person? And I mean, when I took the postcard out on my bell box, I kept looking at the name to make sure that it hadn't accidentally been intended for my roommate. Like, I, and it hadn't, but she would have been a great RA too, by the way, just in case she's listening. I love her. Um, but I did, it just, no way. And there were several times I even contemplated not going to the interview because again, to myself, Oh man, you're going to look like a fool. And they're going to ask you questions and you're just going to look dumb and, and they're going to, you know, you're going to walk out of that interview and they're going to be laughing about you. And I can't believe that girl, you know, there was not one ounce of positivity in my mind about myself going into that interview. Not that I didn't want the job because I really wanted it, but I already had myself convinced before I walked through the doors of duck. I wasn't going to get it. And is this some kind of joke? Why, you know, she doesn't see me out much. How does she know? And, you know, but she told me later on, it was because every time she was behind the desk, I smiled and said, hi, or every time it was out in the hallway, I smiled and said, hi. And so, so I went in, knocked it out of the park, which again was really surprising, but that also showed me, Holy cow, Tracy, wait a minute. You're not what everyone made you out to be in the past you do have something to offer you. That's when some of the, you know, positive self-talk started. Somebody sees something in you that they think is great. So run with it. And, and I remember, Oh my gosh, it was August of 2000. And (laughs) that was my first, you know, my first year in RA. It was a little rocky at first because I was real meek and quiet and hi, I'm your RA and I had some strong personalities on the floor and you know, things got a little chaotic a time or two and and then I remember one time somebody had come to me and said that they thought I was racist and um because we had a situation where a lot of loud music and it just so happened to come from um some of my african-american formates, which had nothing to do with it that wasn't it it was I got a phone call from the front desk music's too loud you have to turn it down and I sat there after I heard that and of course just cried and was like see See, I knew I wasn't meant to do this. I knew I don't have anything, you know, there's nothing in me that's going to make a difference to these girls. And so I called, you know, an entire floor meeting, and I just laid it all out. Not everything, but, you know, here I am trying to make sure that 40 strangers are safe, 40 strangers are loved, 40 strangers are respected. I don't care the color of your skin. I don't care the religion you go to on a Sunday. And I don't care your first or last name. What I care about is how we treat each other on this floor, that we take care of one another. And that is what I am here to do. And if you don't want me to do that, then I'm sorry. And I walked off. And I tell you what, like three minutes later, I went back out of my room because it was just, you know, in the lobby out there on my the floor was dead quiet. And they were all still sitting out there in the hallway by the elevator. And I went out there to, to go down to the front office and, And they stopped me and they were like, oh my gosh, like, we're so sorry. But that moment sparked a conversation amongst themselves, those 40 girls talking about issues and working issues out. And from that day on, we didn't have any more trouble and everyone was very, you know, people would start coming to me with boy troubles or school troubles or mental health troubles. And so that was kind of the day that for whatever reason, that conversation and that that moment when I Almost kind of admitted defeat to myself. For whatever reason, they saw something and they realized, wait a minute, you know, she really is genuine. She really does want the best for us. And then everything completely took a 180 and they started coming to me and felt safe and felt trusted. And that continued on my entire tenure. You know, the residents changed and, and, but it still was always consistently people at my door at two o'clock in the morning, you know poor girl was having a miscarriage in the bathroom and I went with her to the hospital. I mean, there's just, for whatever reason, that one talk that we had created me as an RA. And, you know, they gave me the nickname, you know, trade RA or trial Raw. and I even had it on t-shirts. I mean, it was just, they were, they were drawn to me and they valued what I said. And so to, to like sitting here having this conversation with you right now, thinking back, Oh gosh, was it almost 20 years ago? Um, where I was at that moment sitting there for that like that RA screening and those interviews and then telling you the story now, I can just see the positive like the positive I saw in myself. And and so that's why I always say that 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 place and that job is really what what made me because honestly I don't think had I not gotten that job you know if I had just stayed doing what I was doing down there I don't think I would have been successful in college I probably would have come back home and honestly Seth I don't think I would be here having this conversation with you today so I always sing the praises of getting away you know to go to school getting away to start a new life and you may always find yourself coming back home at some point but it's you got to sometimes you got to get outside your comfort zone and just go far away to really find who you truly are inside.
0: So, Yeah. And you know, you, you mentioned the positive self-talk and uh, you know, people seeing something in you. And I know that's always um, for, for people that deal with, with mental illness, that's, that's something that's difficult to see in yourself. But as one of my counselors has told me time and time again, um, and I'll reiterate here and I'm sure as we go through this podcast or as, as I go through this podcast in different episodes, I'll, I'll, I'll say it again and again, but who am I to tell somebody else they can't see something positive in me? You know, and that's, right. and I had to start thinking that way because you know my um, I have a 16 year old sister, and um, she looks up to me, and I still don't know why. <laughs> I always tell her, "Do as I say, not as I do." Um, <laughs> but you know, my grandma told me one day. Uh, you know your your sister really looks up to you. You know she really always talks highly of you and 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 things of that nature. And I said, why? <laughs> you know, in my mind, right. I was, in my mind's like that's nothing to that that is nothing to you know. I'm not anybody to look up to. Um, and 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 those were my thoughts at the time. Um, and and I was talking about it in one of my one of my sessions. And he, my counselor, looks at me and he says, Who are you to tell her she can't look up to you? If she sees something, you know. And let her. That's that's the exactly. way exactly. That's kind of the way life works, you know. So yeah, um, but that's that's me. I'm always like, no, you don't. Or I'm the world's worst compliment taker.
1: Yeah, I will pass out compliments like they are just freemints. But if you tell me, you know, you're you've really got a pretty mouth. nope no, I don't. Like or I'll say <laughs> thank you, but in my brain, like they're crazy. Yeah. Or hey, that outfit looks great on you. Yeah, no, in my brain, I'm like, it looks like you got on a brown paper sack. Like right. So. I, I'm the same way. I'm always like, you, you, you don't have the right to see anything good in me. But they don't care. They do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. You <laughs> so. can't.
0: You can't tell them that they can't. Um, and and that's right. a, and that's a good thing, honestly. I mean, it's you know, it, it, it feels good when you finally accept that. When you say, okay, right. these these people do like me, or they do see something in me. Um, I want to backtrack just a little bit um, as as we begin to wrap things up here, um, because I know you had mentioned. Um, self-harm earlier in your life in your teenage years but at what Mm -hmm. point was it that you recognized hey i'm dealing with something mentally like mental illness is something that i'm dealing with because i think even when you do something like that you might not necessarily know at that young age that that's what it is you know for me it it was right around the age of 26 but i dealt with it pretty much my whole life um so what at what point was it that you had the cognizant awareness that hey, this is this is mental illness that I deal with. Um, that that there is something that that isn't you know always clicking upstairs. I mean, I don't know if that's that's probably not a great way to put it, but you know that that, oh, that, that, that my that my brain you know works differently than other people's brains. Um, you know, and
1: honestly, it wasn't until I had the postpartum. When I was 30 years old and I think a lot of that was because of, you know as a teenager you hear teenage angst and you have my so-called life on tv and you have Daria on tv that's again showing my age here but um you know it would just start out with just taking pencils and just digging them into my leg and and I wasn't thinking at any point I had a problem it was just a way for me to feel like I had control and even when I had my episode with um and you know what I don't know if some people will call it a suicide attempt because I didn't officially slash my wrist and go to the hospital. I don't know what some people's version of it is, but that's what I consider it because honestly that night I was convinced that was it. Um, Even then I didn't realize that it was mental illness. I thought it was just a product of my surroundings and I was right to feel this way because everyone else had kind of thrown me to the wayside, whether or not that was true. That's what I thought. So it wasn't really until I had my bout with postpartum depression that I realized, okay, wait, okay, wait, <laughs> there's a pattern and it's not a negative pattern, but you know, cause my last, my last real struggle with the, the depression was at that point. Cause in college, like I said, college was great. And I didn't really struggle too much, um, you know, with peers or anything. I always tell people, I wish I could just stay there forever, but I really didn't realize it was a problem until that postpartum and like, okay, wait a minute, you've gone through something like this before this isn't just a one time occurrence. It's, you have history. And even to this day, I still have times where I'm like, why, why do I bother? Not to the point where I want to to end my life, but just those days where I could stay in bed all day with self-doubt and with, you know, negative talk. And why do my kids even love me? Because, you know, he could just go get married and I wonder if there's someone else who could love him more. And, you know, why, why am I even at this job? I know that there's someone who could do it better. So it never goes away and I'm able to control it a little bit better, but it's, and it will never be gone. And I, and, and I hate that, but I also realize that, and I've come to terms with that. Um, I hope and pray that my, my point of self-harm is, is in the past, which I feel, Very confident that it is because, you know, in my older age and working with the kids and and my own kids and my friend, I have purpose. I know that. And I know that if I was not on this planet, that it really would make a big difference. And but I also, you know, there's times that I just have a a bad spell for like a week where I'm just in a bad mood. And then once I'm out of it for a few days, I'm like, there it was. There it was. So um, I said but I, I honestly never really put put a peg on it until, until my postpartum. And like I said, kind of step back and realized that there was, you know, previous history and that I'm always in my own head and, and, you know, and then discovered that I've had family, mem- sorry, family members who've struggled with it um, as well. And then my, you know, my dad was adopted when he was five because his mom passed away and I never met his dad. So I don't know anything about that side of the family really other than the few aunts and uncles that I've met um which I'm thankful for you know that I did get the opportunity to meet them and I love them very much and and, but there's a whole grandmother and grandfather I know nothing about so I don't know what their mental history was I don't know if that's where I get it from so it's always going to be kind of a an unanswered question um and and I do get nervous from time to time wondering If I harmed my kids and I'm passing it on to them or they, you know, oh, gosh, what happens if they if they do the same thing I did or they get upset? But I hope that through my own experience, my eyes are kind of open enough to see when that's starting to happen and to pull them in and to let them know I'm here and to make sure that their school counselor knows, to make sure a professional counselor knows, to make sure anyone knows if my children or anyone at my school or any of my family or my friends need help. I'm going to let them know where they need to go to get that help.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting when you put those pieces together because, like I said, I was around 26, and, and my wife had seen something in me, and, and it had come up that somebody had mentioned on, on Facebook that, that the university was screening for, for mental illness, and she said, maybe you want to go check that out. And you know, in my mind, I'm like, ah, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. Like, I'm I'm okay. But I'll do it because she asked me to, and I love her. Um, and then, oh, hey, you tested really high for depression and anxiety. Maybe you should look at these pamphlets and call us and set some set up an appointment or something like that. Um, but it, it is kind of a an aha moment, I, I think, when you realize that that's what's going on. But I think the positive in that is, you know, as as you mentioned, when it when it happens. You kind of know that's what's happening. You know, it's not exactly. It's not this. Um, I'm going to jump out from behind the bush and scare you type thing. It is okay. Here's what it is, and I know this, and it sucks. But I'm gonna, you know, I'm I know how to deal with it a little bit better because I know what it is. Um, exactly. And, and that's I think that's a, a huge positive. Uh, before we let you go, a couple uh, quick questions. Um, first of all, do you have any sort of tips or tricks? that you use to help deal with, um, your own, um, depression, anxiety, or mental mental illness, uh, when you, when, when it comes about, you know, is there something that you do or something that you turn to that kind of helps you, um, deal with that?
1: Well, I love, I love to sing. So I'm that random lady, like when you're on the road and you're at a red stoplight and it looks like somebody's having like her own concert in her car and she's (laughs) all into it. That's me. Music has always been an outlet for me whether it be, you know, happy music, sad music, angry music. Um, it, you know, it it has always been relief for me. Um, just singing at the top of my lungs or honestly not saying a word and having it on earphones and listening to the same song over and over and over until I break through that anger or I break through that sadness or I break through that frustration. Um, kids just cuddling with my kids as one is stalking me in the room right now, um, you know, just, realizing at the end of the day that they don't care if I've had a bad day. They don't care if I feel like I don't matter. They hug me. They love me. They say they don't want another mommy in the universe. And so they provide for me a medication that, that you can't find anywhere. You know, they, they take care of me without knowing that they take care of me. Um, and honestly my job, because again, the, the satisfaction, I don't even know if that's the right word, but the ability to help someone who's going through something and to have them come back two, three days later, be like, you know what, hey, thank you, or to have them draw me a picture and say, that made me feel better, or to have a parent call me and say, thank you so much, you've made a difference, that, that helps. Um, so, and, listen, and, it, and it could be, again, I you know, I'll run into it, I have a bad week, and then I don't realize it until I'm a few days out of it, that that's what was going on. Um, but in those few times that I feel myself slipping into it or really just having a rough time, those are kind of the things that I turn to to remind myself, this is why my story didn't end at 15. And this is why I hope I can help someone else's story not end before it's meant to.
0: Well, we're, we're certainly glad that, that it didn't end at 15 because you know, I'm know, i thankful and, and grateful that you've come on the podcast um, as this is kind of an upstart. But hopefully it grows Um, that, that's, that's my plan. At least I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, that having people share their stories will, will encourage others to, or, or just help somebody to listen to others, tell their stories, um, before we let you go, um, if you'd like to go ahead, if you want to plug your Twitter or anything like that, any websites, resources, uh, feel free to do that.
1: Sure, um if anyone out here is hearing this podcast and you know reach out to Seth, he's a great guy if you want to reach out to me by all means, you can find me on twitter. It's at lady t two eight two so that's l a d y capital t and then two eight two um I check my Twitter frequently you can d m you can tweet um if for some reason you're listening to this podcast and you feel like we've connected, reach out to me. let me help you let me. Let me help yourself. And, um, but other than that, that's about all I got. Social media was. Hell
0: no, no, that's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: um, but just don't be afraid to reach out. And in those times where you wish someone heard you, I pray that someone does. And if they don't, I hope that you find yourself valuable enough to find someone who will.
0: I don't think I could have said that any better. Uh, Well, we're wrapping up this episode. If you want to contact us here at the show, uh, or really it's just me, it's kind of a one-man show, which which is fine. Um, I I like it that way. Uh, But you can reach out to us at WrestleMindPod at Twitter. Um, We are WrestlingWithTheMind at gmail.com or WrestlingWithTheMind on Facebook. That's going to do it for this episode. Special thanks to Tracy Roberts for joining us today I guess tonight whenever you're listening to it thank you for listening Uh, and remember you may not be okay and that's okay thanks for listening